electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. SEC Chief Gary Gensler is warning crypto firms to comply after a crackdown on a popular money-making path. It's called staking. We'll explain it and why it's cost crypto exchange Kraken $30 million. All we're saying to this generally, largely non-compliant industry, is come in and properly follow the law. Disney CEO Bob Iger is trying to bring the magic back to the Magic Kingdom, and that might not include the streamer Hulu. Puck founding partner Matt Bellany. Disney has spent the past four or five years building up its non-branded, non-IP-driven, adult-oriented content on Hulu, and he's questioning that entire proposition. Plus, Pizza Tuesday, Adidas stumbles on old Yeezys, and Lyft shares tank after weak guidance, but Joe still needs a ride. I'm a babe in the woods. It's Friday, finally, February 10th. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one, cue it, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And it is Friday. And what a week it has been. Let's talk Adidas this morning because it's now saying it could lose around a billion three, $1.3 billion in revenue in 2023 if it is unable to sell its existing Yeezy stock. It said operating profit could take a hit of up to $750 million. The sportswear company scrapped its partnership with uh, Ye, or Ye, formerly known as, of course, Kanye West, uh, in October after he made those series of anti-Semitic comments. Adidas now saying it is assessing what to do with the inventory, with options including repurposing the designs without the brand name or writing off the inventory entirely as part of that settlement, or I should say as part of that statement, the company issued a particularly dire forecast that expects sales to sink at a high single-digit rate in 2023. That compares to analyst expectations of growth of around 4%. And I'm curious for the folks in the audience at the table here, if you're Adidas, yeah. do you repurpose this, the, the stuff Definitely. in some other way? The Joe sneaker. And do people, right. no, but, and do people buy it? That's the question. Right. So, like, um, I was actually having a conversation with my son about this. If yeah. one of these sneakers was available, and you know it's sort of a Yeezy sneaker, but you, but it's like, what did he say? But it's not. But yeah. how do they change it? Do they go back and actually manufacture change it? I don't is know. They put a patch over the side of the name. But other than the brand, is there anything special about that sneaker other than it being a Yeezy sneaker? That's um, uh, any of these things. Any of these branded sneakers are they? You know, they they got like flubber. In the soul, so that do you remember Flubber? Right. You remember yeah, Son yeah. of Flubber? Do, are any of them you like know, no, no, really no. amazing no, shoes? Would no, I want a Yeezy? It's not the quality of the shoe. Well, it, why would I? These so so I'd, still, a, I'd still want a Yeezy sneaker because I could have a Yeezy sneaker, but I'm not supposed to want a Yeezy sneaker because he's been canceled? That's listen, weird. Basically. Well, that's weird. So, wow, this is actually a Yeezy sneaker that's not sold anymore, and I was able to get Contraband. one. That's messed up. The whole thing. I just want to know 
Is it a better sneaker, or does it just have a, a Yeezy symbol? They were symbol? always fashion sneakers, so when you say better sneaker, these weren't sneakers like that were going to make you run whole, faster but now or play he's basketball been, better. Or, but he's been canceled. You don't want him as a fashion um, thing, unless you do, unless it's like you're a bad boy now that you got a Yeezy sneaker. I saw, I saw a, a promo today for a new film that's coming out about Nike and the chase for Michael Jordan and how oh, right, he actually Jordans, came yeah. up with it with no, Air Jordan. I would Jordans. like a Michael Jordan. And I have to say, there is a lot that goes into the marketing, to the decisions, to the branding. And in that case, they're making it seem, at least, like it was into the design of the shoe. I don't know that that has carried out with every shoe that's been designed since then. But boy, was that a blockbuster decision. And boy, is there a lot that goes into it. And I had no idea that Adidas was so reliant on yay. Right for any of this stuff. And I think it's a cautionary tale. Maybe Gap got out just in time. Their timing was right when they hadn't gone too deep into any collaboration with them. Lyft shares losing nearly a third of their value. The company posted revenue of $1.18 billion, slightly beating estimates, but it's the guidance that's weighing on the shares. Lyft expects just $975 million in revenue in the current quarter, short of the $1.09 billion that analysts uh, expected the CFO said that guidance is a result of seasonality and lower prices. Let's also uh, check out the shares of Uber, which by contrast, reported record earnings on Wednesday. And that stock took off after yes. their earnings. So Here's, here's someone my need to explain take, it. Like, to, clearly, to Uber is winning. That's obviously Why, the takeaway. Though? But the other thing I would say is this can get a little dangerous at this point because Lyft also said that they are going to keep prices low. And remember what the airlines have always said, you're only as smart as your dumbest competitor. Right. If your competitor is seriously underpricing things, it's going to be harder to get pricing power. Is the... Just... The, you know, getting a ride somewhere, is that commoditized now? And Uber's actually doing really well with Uber Eats or something? Where, how is it differentiating? I, I don't know. Andrew, I was going to ask Andrew, you. how is I, I, it differentiating Eats, itself it's, from it's, Lyft? Is it, how is I, th- Uber, I think they have more drivers. They, more drivers. They have, more drivers in certain places, but, but I think Uber would probably argue that they have more drivers. It's, again, it's, it's, it's specific to the place. Um, how do they differentiate themselves? I would say it's like a cultural thing. Does it run better? Is Uber run better? Run, oh, you're saying is Uber run better than Lyft? Is it logistically better? What, what, two, two companies that seem right. like they do basically the same thing. Correct. What would cause Uber to, have, to be doing so much better than Lyft? Oh, because they provide, the, I mean, I think is the argument scale? is the Maybe app, it's I, think it, I think the app is yeah, better. better. I think the communication between drivers may be better. Because with drivers. Like, I don't use it, but like my daughter's, oh, I got a little, or it doesn't really matter. She gets either one, whichever one is going to No, come, people so. arbitrage them. There's yeah. no question. But that's it, why I would say. Uh, it's how much, of your, how much they're giving away at any given time to the driver. But, it's, but remember, all of this is in real time. So the, the, the great challenge is these. Like, the numbers are changing. It's not always clear that one... Right. Like, I was actually talking to an uh, Uber driver who, who uses Lyft sometimes. He says sometimes you want to be on Lyft in, that like, specific moments, and sometimes you want to be on Uber in specific moments. Seems like a lot of work. I, I would say there's probably a lot of people who, if they find one they like, they stick with it, and maybe Uber's gotten more of those people right. over, over time. But I don't know the logistics behind it. The one thing I will say is if they're going to keep prices lower, that's a tougher competitor to fight, and that's a... a not well, and for a very long time, Lyft had lower prices. I mean, that was yeah. that was well, the thing. Still, no, I mean, Lyft oh. is the one that still is going to right. Lose. But the question is, yeah. is that going to you know remain and, right. and does it stick? And then, how much more of the margin do they have to give away to the driver at the same time? It is. Uh, I can't believe my entire life there was no such thing, and it's so unbelievable now. I mean, it really is for people that maybe don't <clears throat> don't want a car, don't want to drive. You know, they, there's a lot of liability to driving a car, especially at certain times. 
and to be able to just bar yeah something like (laughs) that or if you're going you know even when you're oh i think i'm gonna i'm gonna get there with a lift and i'm gonna yeah and and it's much cheaper than a black car black car service you know that like with a big suv or so it's probably a third or, or less maybe a quarter of the price of a you know like a limousine so they aren't limos but they're big you know, black car service, they yeah. Yeah, Lincoln Town car or something. Right. right. Are you using UberX? I would use, if when I have used it, like if the whole family's going to the airport and we're going to use right. it, I, well, you need one, right? You need right. The, the high end, uh, you need something a little bigger, but it's still, what? what is that, half price from a? I don't know. I think, well, the, I think the prices are, compar- are comparable. No, they're not, are yes, they? They are. If you do an Uber Black, it's relatively comparable. It is. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, Gary Gensler, chair of the Securities and Exchange Commission. He's being aggressive with crypto. I think it's just a talking point that the industry is using. They know how to do this. They are just choosing not to do it. Kraken, the world's third largest cryptocurrency exchange, will pay a $30 million settlement to regulators. The story behind the Kraken crackdown, the story behind a controversial tactic called staking, that is all next. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. Stand by, Joe. His mic. Q. Good morning, and welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC, live from the Nasdaq Market Site in Times Square. I'm Joe Kernan, along with Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Let's talk about uh, cryptocurrency because the cryptocurrency exchange Kraken is going to be forced now to end its crypto staking program in the U.S. and pay a thirty million dollar fine to settle charges from the SEC. The agency said Kraken had failed to register the program, whereby investors earn a yield in return for locking up their tokens and allowing them to be used to facilitate track transactions on the blockchain. It's the SEC's first crackdown on staking. And joining us right now is SEC Chair Gary Gensler. We should say Bitcoin and uh, pretty much all the cryptocurrencies are down on the back of this news. Uh, Chair Gensler, it's great to see you this morning. Um, there's, a, there's a phrase online where they say, tell it to me like I'm five. So for those who are uninitiated into what happened here, Tell it to me like I'm five. What, what, what was Kraken doing and what was the problem that you were trying to solve? Um, Andrew, what Kraken was doing was asking the American public for their coins, uh, uh, crypto tokens, and saying, I'll give you a return, 4% to 21% returns. And the problem was they were not disclosing to the investing public uh, the risk that the investing public was 
entering into. And we have a basic bargain in the United States since the 1930s. You can take whatever risks you want. Companies like Kraken can offer investment contracts and investment schemes, but they have to have full, fair, and truthful disclosure. And this puts the investors who watch your program in a better position. That's our basic bargain. They were not complying with that basic law. So how does this, though, differ, for example, uh, from some of the other firms out there, including Coinbase, who offer yield products? Whether you call it, the labels don't matter. Uh, long ago, Supreme Court Justice Marshall said this so eloquently. Uh, it's not about the labels. It's about the underlying economics. And uh, this really should put everyone on notice in this marketplace, whether you call it lend, whether you call it earn, whether you call it yield, whether you offer what's called an annual percentage yield, APY. That doesn't matter. If somebody's taking their tokens and transferring it to that platform, the platform controls it. And guess what happens if they go bankrupt? You stand in line at the bankruptcy court. There's a saying in crypto that says, not your keys, not your coins. So those other platforms should right. take note of this and seek to come into compliance, do the proper disclosures and registration and the like. Okay, so but here's one of the big issues, as I think you know, which is this staking service is going to no longer be available to customers in the U.S. But interestingly, they're going to still offer the same product internationally, abroad, outside of the United States. And so it raises this larger policy question as to whether crypto, A, these types of products just move offshore. Maybe that's what you want and that's a good thing. But then whether what you do about the American citizenry, who's then using VPNs and all sorts of other things to to skirt around what's happening here. Look, we're technology neutral at the SEC, but we're clearly very focused on investor protection. 330 million Americans are our clients. These firms, Kraken knew how to register. Others know how to register. It's just a form on our website. They can come in, talk to our talented people and disclosure review teams. And if they want to offer staking, we're neutral. Come in, register, because investors need that disclosure. What are you doing with the tokens? Are you trading against the right. tokens? Are you borrowing against the token? Are you using them for your own purposes? And we've seen this in the crypto field. So investors not only need that disclosure, but it's the law. Right. Gary, I, I want to read you something. This is uh, Hester Pierce, someone you know well. He's a Republican commissioner of the SEC. And and great he respect for my fellow commissioner. She disagreed with the decision. Let me just read you something. Uh, using enforcement actions to tell people what the law is in an emerging industry is not an efficient or fair way of regulating, she says. Moreover, staking services are not uniform, so one-off enforcement actions and cookie-cutter analysis does not cut it. A paternalistic and lazy regulator settles on a solution like this one in this settlement. What, what is your reaction? Well, we, uh, the commissioner and I have a very good relationship. We chat regularly and have lively de policy debates and debates around these matters. Let me step it back. The SEC staff is really dedicated, serve the public, work hard staff. And we have for decades used 
the various tools Congress has given us to protect the investing public. And if that means somebody is breaking the law, non-compliant, we do use enforcement. Where there are, <clears throat> where there are authorities that Congress has given us, we do write regulations. And we right. do both. And I would even just say, if you look at the history of insider trading, a lot of what we've done around insider trading starting decades ago was a, through enforcement actions. This is not something new right. at all. All we're saying to this non-compliant, generally largely non-compliant industry is come in and properly follow the law. Disaggregate, segregate the customer funds and protect the customer funds, which is what broker dealers under the law need to do. The exchanges, right. register as an exchange and disaggregate those hedge fund opportunities that right. you're taking and market making. Chair, so there is a yeah. clear way to do this and there's forms on our website. Right. I think it's just a talking point that the industry is using. They know how to do this. They are just choosing not to do it. Well, let me ask you, talking about clarity, and this is maybe a philosophical sort of broader policy perspective. I think that there is a common view uh, that your office is using uh, all available means effectively to keep crypto out of the mainstream financial system through enforcement, accounting rules, inspections. Clearly, there's not real guidance yet on custody. And this may very well be a reasonable policy choice, if that's the choice. The question is, if that's the choice, why not just say it publicly? We're using all available tools. We're talking directly to market participants. We take the meetings and we say, this is how you comply. There's a handful of tokens that have actually registered. The intermediaries, the storefronts, if you wish, the casinos that people are uh, investing in and investing at need to properly comply and disentangle these bundled products. The business model that they've set up has, is rife with conflicts. And so we've been very candid with them. I've done it in multiple speeches since I came to the agency. We'll continue to engage. We're technology neutral. But if this field has any chance of survival and success, it's time-tested rules and laws to protect the investing public, disclosure, full, fair, and truthful disclosure, address right. conflicts and disaggregate these bundled businesses and don't have your hand in the customer's pocket using their funds right. or your own uh, sure, again, platforms. So where, but in terms of the, the, the larger industry and whether the, I mean, you, you even seem to suggest the larger industry may or may not survive um, you know, one of the pieces of that survival to some degree, I think, has been this idea that one day there may be something like a Bitcoin ETF or something else. Grayscale, as you know, appealing uh, the SEC's Bitcoin ETF decision, which is effectively to say it can't happen. Is there any path at which you think either that specific ETF or something like it could? The, the paths, I'm not going to speak about one, but let me generally say, Andrew, the path forward is well trodden. Whether it's large companies that you follow every day, the Apples and, the, and, and other tech companies or the automobile companies, manufacturing companies know how to register their offerings. The exchanges like the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ and so forth know how to be compliant and come into registration. The big broker dealers and the small thousands of broker dealers, the mutual funds. Right. 
I dare I go on. We have tens of thousands of registrants that properly in good faith comply. They register. They make the proper disclosures. It's time for this group to do so. The runway is getting awfully short. Um, and we're here to try to protect the right. investing public. And then separately, while we have you, I did want to ask you about this Wall Street Journal report uh, that the SEC is planning to ease up on some of the climate disclosure rules that had earlier been proposed um, in reaction to some of the I investor pushback. What is the state of play in your mind? So we uh, made a proposal about uh, eight, ten months ago uh, to bring some consistency and comparability to the disclosures already happening, climate risk disclosures. Investors are making investments based on these disclosures. We got nearly 15,000 public comments on that proposal. It is customary, Andrew, in each of our rulemakings that we review all that, we think through the economics, we think through the legal authorities that commenters have raised, and uh, it, it's quite uh, uh, customary to make adjustments. We, right. Your viewers know this, that uh, we did something about insiders selling their stock and we finalized it in December. We, we adjusted from the proposal. Right. We're taking up something next Wednesday uh, uh, with regard to settlement cycles. This proposal to move to what's called one-day settlement from two-day right. settlement. And it's, it's customary to make right. adjustments. How much of that reaction, though, from investors do you think is based on the political backlash? And I want to read you. This is from uh, 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 Patrick McHenry uh, recently announcing a new working group for what he calls a threat to capital markets posed by the far left. He says progressives are trying to do with American business what they already did to our public education system using institutions to force their far-left ideology on American people. Their latest tool in these efforts is environmental, social, and uh, governance proposals. How much of you think of this as the political uh, machine putting pressure on the investor class, which is then putting pressure on you? Look, we, we're, uh, I, I like to say, we're merit neutral, whether it's about crypto or climate risk, but we're non-investor protection neutral or capital formation neutral. And so it's about just in this space for us, uh, it's about bringing consistency and comparability to disclosures that are already being made about climate risks. And uh, investors seem to be today making decisions about this information, these disclosures. And it's not to us about uh, uh, achieving anything else but some consistency and comparability and disclosures. Chair, Chair Gensler, I, I talked to uh, Congressman McHenry about this a couple of days ago. And Chair, Chair McHenry. Yes, Chair McHenry, exactly. And he had no idea which models to use to try to assess climate risk. One year, two year, five year, 10 year, 50 year, 100 year. None of the model, nobody knows what models to use. Your investors that you're talking about that want this disclosure don't know what models to use. It's, I mean, you're like, just searching so, around in a dark room with a blindfold on. It's, it's absurd to try to, for you to try to take it upon, or the, the agency to try to take it upon itself to, to do this. And it's, it's So, it's so Joe, you raise a very good point. It, the disclosure proposals that we've made, and, and as I said to Andrew, we, we regularly make adjustments from proposal to adoption, but the proposals we made were about disclosing if you have a, a, a 
transition plan to disclose and how what that plan is. If, if a company doesn't have a climate transition plan, the disclosure was we don't we don't have that such a plan or a target. Some companies have targets to how to manage this. And it was if you have something to disclose it and sort of describe it and so that the investing public has the material features of those uh, plans um, uh, in that regard. Okay. Chair Gensler, uh, appreciate you joining us this morning, especially uh, after this news broke and helping uh, break it down and explain it to us. Thanks. Thank you so much. You be well and your viewers as well. Thanks. And it was fascinating to hear him in terms of what he's doing with Kraken, but there seems to be a larger approach here in terms of what the SEC is doing. By the way, similar to what Jay Clayton did, you know, last time around, which is I think there's an effort to sort of keep crypto still at bay, right? And the question is, when does that... Does that change? Does it ever change? Uh, is there a tipping point? And to the question we had asked him, which is, if that is the philosophy, why don't you just come out and say it? Just right. say, hey, well, we, we're not into this. Some people were speculating that this is kind of an in run for him to do as much as he can while Congress is a new this, Congress and still. Yeah, well, this is without flaws. Congress, exactly. Yeah. To, do, to do what right. they can while Congress isn't doing anything or focusing on it to, right. to kind of make a It'd real be very interesting to see what, if Congress had to had its way, and could, well, I don't know. I don't know what Congress would actually do if it, if it ever really took this up. Coming up on Squawk Pod, the next drama at Disney, possibly selling Hulu. Matt Bellany of Puck on CEO Bob Iger's new strategy at the entertainment giant, and it may not include things like The Dropout or The Handmaid's Tale. In an era where people are cutting back on content, He's thinking perhaps Disney should be going back to its core of the more genre and IP-driven stuff. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. Welcome back to Squawk Pod from CNBC. One of the major corporate stories of this week, Disney and the new chapter at the media and entertainment giant under CEO Bob Iger, who returned to his old job late last year. On the announcement of the company's fourth quarter results this week, Iger announced a broad restructuring of Disney, cost cuts, and 7,000 layoffs. He spoke to CNBC's David Faber yesterday about Disney after COVID. We're still recovering from that, and we're still obviously... um losing money on streaming, and obviously that's one of the reasons why we have to turn that around. But as we said on the call yesterday, we're going to get to a point where we're going to um, recommend to the board a dividend at the end of the year. That suggests some confidence in our cash flow directory and how uh, we not only generate capital, but how we allocate capital. Iger clearly did his job communicating to Wall Street what his new Disney will look like. Activist investor Nelson Peltz had been waging a proxy campaign against the House of Mouse. He wanted a seat on the board, and he criticized the company's spending on acquisitions and lack of a clear succession plan. Hmm. Peltz owns around 9 million shares of Disney and said that bad choices and the CEO shakeup have eroded the value of the company for its shareholders. Well, following Iger's live CNBC interview, Nelson Peltz waved the white flag, said, OK, it's over. This was a great win 
for all the shareholders. Management at Disney now plans to do everything that we wanted them to do. We wish the very best to Bob, his management team, the board. We will be watching. We will be rooting. And the proxy fight is over. So the proxy battle ends, and not to bury the lead, then there's the last headline of the wild couple of days at Disney. Bob Iger said that he may sell Disney's two-thirds stake in streaming service Hulu because it may be a little off-brand. Hulu, by the way, is a very successful platform, and I think a good consumer proposition. But we're everything's on the table right now, so I'm not going to I'm not going to spec I'm not going to speculate about whether we're a buyer or a seller of it. But I I obviously have suggested that. Um, I'm concerned about undifferentiated general entertainment, and in the, particularly in the competitive landscape that we're operating in, and we're going to look at it very objectively. So is Hulu on the block? Our Andrew Ross Sorkin takes it from here. Joining us right now is Matt Bellany. He is Puck's founding partner, uh, runs a newsletter, which he knows I read uh, quite religiously. Uh, Matt, this is really the first time we heard uh, Bob Iger speak publicly about Hulu and frankly, actually quite directly. Um, and it seems, at least from my vantage point, and I think from your vantage point, from what I'm reading, your writing, that you think he is uh, he's a seller at this point. Yeah, it's not just that Iger says that everything's on the table there. It's the second part. It's the fact that he's looking closely at this, quote, undifferentiated general content. And that is a big shift there because Disney has spent the past four or five years building up its non-branded, non-IP driven, adult oriented content on Hulu and even a little bit on Disney Plus, putting Dance with the Stars there and things like that. And what Iger is saying here is that he's questioning that entire proposition in an era where people are cutting back on content. Right. He's thinking perhaps Disney should be going back to its core of the more genre and IP driven stuff. But why wouldn't if you are like trying to rationalize, why wouldn't you see the benefit of putting it with something else uh, since it may, might not be stand? It seems like that might be a better time to, to get it on the cheap from confidence. Is there a number that Comcast could get from Disney that would make sense to bring it in and do it, put Peacock together and rationalize all those op operations? It seems like it's it's going to have to be rolled into something else. It, it, does it seem standalone at this point, Matt? Well, that's the big question, because as we know, Disney has until 2024 where there's this going to be this option to sell. And what what they've done is they've really built up the value of Hulu to the point where it would probably cost Disney about $9 billion or more to buy out that third that Comcast owns. So Iger, is, he's either doing this because he thinks that putting it on the table like this will generate more bidders, perhaps, for this stake, um, or he's thinking perhaps this will lower the price right, if he's right, then going right. to go to Comcast. We don't think. really need Matt, this. Matt, do you think this, this think comes, though, with content or not? And then is this, um, you know, how do you think about the, the Fox transaction? The reason I ask is mm. some people think a sale, if you were to sell Hulu, you sell it as a shell, meaning literally just as a, the distribution sort of pipe with all the, the subscribers. You merge it with a Peacock or a Paramount or whatever you want to merge it with. And and but it's, it doesn't come with content, maybe a license deal on some of the current content for a couple of years. Or do you think if he were to sell it, it comes with all what he might have even just described as undifferentiated content? 
Well, that's going to be very difficult to kind of separate out the content that would or would not apply to the adult or Fox-oriented content, because some of the content is great. The Simpsons, they love that on Disney+. Plus. It's a perennial winner. Avatar, they love that. But there's some of the other stuff, perhaps FX and things like that, that may go along with it. But, you know, any buyer of Hulu is probably going to want a commitment to content for a certain period. What the question is, how much can they claw back and how long would those deals be in order for them to fully get rid of it as a shell? I'm and excited. that I don't think Iger even knows. I mean, they're working with Goldman Sachs on this to kind of figure out what the optionality is for Hulu. What do you, let's say the buyer, what happens to the stock of the buyer, knowing that you're just doubling down on something that, I mean, I was thinking if, if Comcast were to say, okay, we'll, we'll take this on. I mean, don't you think the stock would probably say this, we don't like this? Even Disney. I don't even know if Disney, well, given their problems with streaming. And, and Matt's, uh, I don't think anyone co- Matt's colleague just did a fascinating newsletter about Peacock and the growth of Peacock even the last quarter or two as a function of the fact that all of a sudden uh, NBC started to put a, a lot of its best content on the platform for the first time. Subscribe. And you're actually right. now seeing a lot of subscriber growth. But, but, but having said that, there's the big money. question of are you cannibalizing? I mean, right. do you therefore then cannibalize your own business? And that's the Is real it, conundrum. And are you monetizing it yet or just a better subscriber growth? Right. I don't Yeah, and that's the thing is that Peacock has had some growth, mostly from pulling back some of the content that was previously on Hulu. Because remember, Comcast was an owner of Hulu. You know, they, they saw that stake, but they did they put all their content there. They pulled it over to Peacock, and it's really helped them. Imagine if they then were to get some of that Hulu content, put those together, Peacock or whatever they would call it would grow, but it would be an expensive proposition to do right. that. Matt, I uh, want to thank you. Always great to talk to you in the morning and to see your newsletter in my inbox. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Maybe the hot potato nature lowers the price of what it eventually. That's what it sounds like negotiating to me. Tuesday night is Domino's night uh, every Tuesday. Uh, Every Tuesday's Domino's night. For my son. Yep, we do. Yeah, no, I don't. See, you're the person that I'm talking about who looks over at me and judges me. uh, Not judging. Yeah, you're judging me. I love pizza, as you know. Pizza, donuts, carbs. I just love carbs. So it's... It's not a vegan pizza. I mean, there is cheese on it. You have cheese on your pizza? I have cheese... A pepperoni. Well, now you're adding the climate change. I, you know, I, 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 I that's disappointing that, to me. So you have, you, you still have meat you on stop, your pizza. You stop the, that's where the line I have is for so you. much meat on my pizza, you can't even see the cheese. No, I don't. <laughs> Taco Tuesday at our house. That's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan. Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. This podcast is produced by me, Katie Kramer, Cameron Costa, Caroline Rahotis, and Zach Felici. Our editors are John Lazration and Rafael Gonzalez. Please follow Squawk Pod wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend to listen too. We'll meet you back here on Monday. Have a good weekend. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.